Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to my podcast, Not That Kind of Rabbi. As I always do, I clarify at the beginning, I'm actually not a rabbi. But if I was a rabbi, I wouldn't be that kind of rabbi. And I think you know what I'm talking about. You know, this is a, a very interesting time, spiritually speaking, as we all have to take an, kind of a sabbatical on acid, basically. This break that you usually get built into the Jewish tradition where every seven days you just stop doing things, every six days you stop doing things, and on the seventh day you be, you just be. Well, we're kind of in a place as a society and individually where we're kind of forced to be. We have to sort of come to terms with what have I been doing? What am I like commuting how many hours to do what, to go where? Have to be at that office, couldn't have done it from home. Um, spend time with my kid instead of having to be out and then sort of see them for an hour and a half when I'm tired at the end of the day. All these different things are coming into play at the same time. And there's a lot of having to come to terms with yourself because you can't run. There's, it's not like, you know, you can run over to Europe because it's safer there. There is no safer there. This is a insidious and interesting time because it's a virus of all things. Of all the things that could change the world at this moment in time, after all these years of talking about climate change and all these apocalyptic images that we get from fundamentalist religions, we end up with something you can't see, you can't taste, you can't smell, you don't know if it's there, you don't, know, you don't even know if you've had it. That's how strange this all has become. But in that, I think there are opportunities for things. And in, there's perspectives to have on how we got to this place and where we're going to go from here. And I really wanted to talk to an old friend of mine because I actually have always valued his opinion about what the world is and where it goes. And he's always been able to take it and twist it a bit, and bring it back out into the light and go, mm, I bet you didn't think of it this way. So I have him here with me today. We've known each other since God knows when, since high school, I think. And, uh, We've gone through a lot of wars together in showbiz in Canada, and uh, he has stood tall through the whole thing and is still doing great work and still bringing a lot of laughter to a lot of people because he is the founder and the CEO of Yuck Yucks International and all those Yuck Yucks clubs you go into, he's had a stake in making sure they happen. His name is Mark Breslin, and he joins me now. Hello, Mark. How are you? Ralph, I'm doing fine. Against how's, all odds. How's isolation treating you? Now, I don't have a problem with isolation because I used to use another word for it in my life called solipsism. And uh, as a result, <laughs> uh, the gap between how I live now and how I usually live isn't all that much. You know what, what I miss is shopping. But other than shopping, I'm perfectly happy to be at home. Most of my work now has been not at the office, not even at the clubs. Um, you know, social media... And the internet has changed my life to the point where I no longer have to be there to be there. And right. that's a fabulous thing. And that's been operating for the last five or six years. So when you talk about people who, um, you know, have completely changed their lives because of COVID and now they're home and they're with their kids. Well, I've been with my, my family for the last, you know, 10 years, um, far more than I've been out at the office or out at clubs anyway. So it hasn't been that much of a, of a shift for me. I guess I'm glad to say. So I'm going to guess that the change in direction from outside to inside had a lot to do with having a kid. 
It did. It also had to do with um, getting older. And somehow when you're way out there every night of the week, um, it just seems kind of pointless. What do I want when I go out? What do I want? What am I looking for? What is the experience that I'm looking for? Well, I, I like people. I really do enjoy the company of people. And I get that. But, you know, I, I don't drink. Um, so that's of no interest. I'm married. I have no interest in picking up women. Um, I'm at the point in my career where I've kind of met everybody who can really help. So I don't need to do that anymore. So why am I going out? Why am I going out at all? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. It is uh, in the Hindu tradition, you know, you spend the first, you kind of did it in reverse. The, the first part of your life, you're the householder and you create the sense of home and and then as you get older, you become a forest dweller. You go into a place of contemplation with a lot less stimulation. <clears throat> it seems like you've married the two ideas at one so that you raise the family at the same time that you were done with having to be in the outside world all the time. Is that right? Well, nature doesn't want you to do it this way. Nature wants you to have children when you're 30. It does not want you to have children when you're 60 for a lot of good reasons, most of, most of which revolve around your health and your energy. Um, and there's no question that it is exhausting to have a child at this age, but there's a plus. Um, what I gain in, uh, what I lose in energy, I gain in wisdom. So I find I don't have to uh, waste a lot of time in bringing up a uh, child, uh, chasing down ideas that just don't work. I kind of know what might work just because I'm older and just because I have those experiences. And I'm a pretty young, I'll be 70 soon. But I'm a pretty young 70. Hmm, 70, isn't that amazing? Almost. I'll be 68 in May. Yeah. I tell people 70 because then they say, wow, you look great. <laughs> I never understood, Ralph, why people would say they were looked, they were younger than they were, because then you can never say you look great. Then you'd say, hmm, it doesn't look so good for you. <laughs> you didn't age that well. It was no, something so, uh, so tell me more about wisdom. And I wait, wait, and I do look great, Ralph, by the way. If if you don't mind me saying so, you can see. Um, I don't look like a 70-year-old, but I'm rotting on the inside. And that's what people don't see. <laughs> Fermenting is the way I'd prefer to see it. I think the French have a word called vermoulu, which is usually used in conjunction with tertiary syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I want to know more about, is there a time or a phase of life where you started to really feel yourself move from experience mongering, as it were, into collecting uh, experiences into wisdom. Do you, do you have a sense of when that happened for you? I would like to tell you it's when I started reading the Talmud, but unfortunately that's not true. Um, I think this is a gradual thing. It isn't like somebody flipped a switch. I did not have some kind of epiphany. None of that happened. It was just all natural and it was all organic. But I want you to understand, Ralph, it's not like I don't like going out. It's not like I don't like meeting new people. And it's not like I don't like getting involved in new ideas and projects. It's just that I don't feel obsessed with it as I once did. Yeah. What was that obsession about? That obsession was to make sure I did not have a life anything like my parents. Um, as Woody Allen once observed about his parents, their values were God and carpeting. And in a very similar way, you know, my parents lived a very small life and I didn't want to live a small life. I also had older parents, by the way, and I think mm -hmm. that informed it. Um, by the time I was 10, my father was more or less retired. I had a lot of access to him, which was something that a lot of my friends did not have and was very special, although I didn't realize it at the time. Um, but 
um, they weren't what I would call lead, leading an exciting life. They were leading very much a couch life. Um, they had a TV. It was a very important part of their lives and a very important part of my life when I was 10, 11, 12, 13. But then I wanted to get out. I wanted to test my knowledge in the field of deeds. And you did. And I did. And I did. And probably to excess. But um, it was very important to me to do that because I was very, very aware that um, time is of the essence. My parents have are cheating the actuarial tables simply by being as old as they are. Um, and uh, I want as much as I can jam into my little life. Did you ever feel like you weren't really driving the bus, though? That you were driven but not driving? I don't know what you mean, so maybe you want to just elaborate on that. Well, I just as you were talking, it occurred to me that sometimes we we think we're sort of in control of the idea of our ambition, sometimes our ambitions in control of us it it's what's make it it's this slave master that's just you know sl slapping us on the back going what are you that's it keep going what that's it lao tzu we are all straw dogs tossed by the wind i had no idea and no sense of self-reflection um about what i was doing while i was doing it none i just did it hmm Yet you always struck me as somebody who could analyze and deconstruct and was smart enough to know what was going on. And you're saying you, you, you lacked a certain self-awareness. I think so, yes. Hmm. All I know is I was having too much fun and it was just, you know, Blake said energy is eternal delight and I've always believed in that. And I was living such an energetic life. Uh, that there was no time or interest in analyzing it because if I analyzed it, uh-oh, I might see the holes in it. I might start to question it. I don't want to question what is right now at that time, a perfect time in my life. Perfect. Wow. Yeah. You don't get to say that much. That's No, I, I really feel, feel I had 15 or tw even 20 perfect years. And that follows having 15 or 20 really imperfect years. I had a very rough adolescence in a lot of ways and and post-adolescence and then this world opened up to me and everything I believed came true and I wasn't going to mess with it Ralph yeah. I wasn't going to mess with it by questioning it too much I do remember that you know even when I first started to know you you'd been through quite a bit in high school and you know you were smaller than other guys you were your parents were older you had all these things that were different about you uh, and it seemed to me that there was a vindication that was taking place in post high school life and in professional life that it was like, Oh yeah, I'll show you. And you're right. But it went back even as far as in high school. If you remember when I, um, I ran the guy for president who didn't exist. <laughs> tell uh, that story. You got to tell that story. Cause I, I still tell people that story. Well, it's a very long story, but tell um, it, tell I'll, it. I'll shorten it up. Um, to, uh, I was in grade 13. I had already lost um, the presidential election the year before and the vice presidential election the year before that, but I did well. I just didn't win. And um, I somehow thought that it would be a very interesting and cool, almost conceptual art prank to run somebody for president who didn't even exist. I got a number of people around me who um, got the idea and it took us a year, a full year to make people believe that this phony person existed. 
and nobody questioned it. And that was sort of part of the art of it. Um, that was part of the point of it. And he won. And when that happened, and then it became obvious that I was the one behind it, it really was a form of, uh, you know, to hell with you. Um, I won, you lost. And so there. And I kind of left that high school with a great sort of feeling of uh, vindication. Hmm. But, you know, then I went on to university and I spent four years on a cowering on a couch uh, reading books every day because I was too terrified to do anything. It was a terrible time for me. Well, why, why was it so hard? Um, well, I went from being kind of the, uh, uh, a major person in, in, in my environment in high school to being a kind of nobody in university. And I found the transition really tough to take. But I was going through all kinds of other things, too. I mean, I, was, I, I, I couldn't get really a date till I got out of, out of university. So there was that problem. Mm-hmm. And we had a problem at home. My sister uh, had multiple sclerosis and my parents were dealing with that. That's an older sister, a much older sister. And we all lived together in one house. And it was just living in a, in a horrible, horrible place. Not, a, not in the sense that there was no love in the place. There was almost too much love in the place. But it was, it was a real bad off-Broadway play. And I had to get out. I just had to get out. I couldn't wait to wake up in the morning and go to school, go anywhere, uh, come home late, go to, go to a play, go to a movie, come home when everybody's already asleep so I wouldn't have to hear all the storm and drang of everything that was going on. That was a big problem too. You know, it's interesting when you describe that, that sounds to me like the life that I saw you living when you uh, started Yak Yaks and were in Bay and Yorkville and you'd be awake when everyone was asleep. You go, you go out as late as you could. You did your own thing. You were never in, you know, you were always moving, constantly moving. It, it, so it seems like it sort of has that same energy for different reasons. Well, Ralph, you can't hit a moving target. Hmm. Can you? Well, <clears throat> depends on the aim, I guess. And who's shooting. My <laughs> advice to people is, Serpentine. 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 That's right. Um, When you were a kid, did you go to synagogue? Only on high holidays. I was brought up kind of orthodox. Um, I come from a long line of rabbis. Um, There's a picture in Beth Sedek. I don't know if it's still there in the museum. A big picture of my great-grandfather, Solomon Breslin. And he has a beard down to, he looks like ZZ Top. Um, right. And yeah. of the fiercest eyes I've ever seen, boy, he looks like a guy you did not want to mess with, but I come from a long line of, of rabbis. In fact, one of my cousins went to Lithuania about five, six years ago. Um, he's a wealthy guy and he wanted to trace the family tree and traced it supposedly back to the great rabbi of Vilnius who is all one of considered one of the great rabbis in the mm-hmm. Talmud. And supposedly I'm a direct uh, descendant of of him. Meanwhile, I'm glad to know that he does not know that I belong to the Bacon of the Month Club and that I married a German girl. <laughs> <laughs> out of spite? <laughs> no, I don't think out of spite. Um, <laughs> I, I was, you know, I really hated Hebrew school, uh, but I really loved Judaism. And there's a big, big disconnect there. And you know, I think it's interesting for Jews is that they can kind of pick the kind of Judaism that they want. You'll find atheistic Jews, you'll find um, Zionist Jews, you'll find traditional Jews, you'll find Orthodox Jews, you'll find social consciousness Jews, and you can kind of create your own. And what I've gotten out of my Judaism after all these years is I love the notion of tikkun olam, 
which I'm sure you you're very repair familiar. of the world. Yes. Sorry, repair of the world. Yes, repair of the world, and that the Jews are put on this earth to actually for their relationship with the Gentiles and to improve Gentile life. And I love the arrogance of that. That really appeals to me. Um, but it also appeals to me that, you know, when you think of all the things that Jews have done for the world, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, we propel the world forward in a very positive way. Uh, not counting uh, Epstein and Weinstein and, well, you know. Yeah. Anybody bad Jews. Epstein. I bad can't Jews. tell. These bad Jews don't do us any good, Ralph. Well, there was always that mythology when we were growing up, because I remember reading the Jerusalem Post when I was in journalism school, because I was analyzing some articles from there. And I was reading about, you know, Jew guys with Jewish names who were breaking and entering and attempted murder. And I thought, we're not supposed to be those people. So it sort of sunk in. But I want to go back to something you said, which is interesting for me, which is that Jews can choose the way they want to be Jews. I don't come from that. I, you know, as you know, I, I come from Sephardic Judaism and yes. as a Moroccan, very traditional kind of people. And when I came here and I would go to visit friends' houses in, in Forest Hill in Toronto, come from my little apartment on Lyons Avenue and go and see the way they lived, I saw bacon in their fridge. I saw all this stuff and I thought, wow, they're like doing boutique Judaism where they get to choose the parts they like. And in our house, it just, you did it, you did it, you did it. You didn't talk about it. And you certainly didn't get to choose levels of observance. We weren't orthodox. We were traditional, but we didn't have those things. And to me, it was a sign of the comfort that Eastern European or Ashkenazi Jews had in the world of North America at that time, where they felt like they were safe and had arrived and could make those choices. They didn't have to circle the wagons. Did Maybe, you ever, uh, go ahead. No, sorry, uh, Ralph asked the question. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, I've always believed, and I actually gave a sermon at Beth Sholem about five years ago on this topic about the unsung um, golden age of Judaism, which was post-war um, American and to some degree Canadian um, Jewishness. Um, it's a Jewishness that um, kind of was summed up to me when I, in 1967, when I went to the beach and that summer I looked up the beach and I looked down the beach and it wasn't a Jewish beach. It was just a beach and everyone had a book cover with a yellow jacket on and that yellow jacket was uh, Portnoy's complaint. <laughs> and in that time zone, Bob Dylan was a sex symbol and um, uh, uh, the beach boys were writing you know, love songs about these Jewish women that they were uh, involved with. Um, mm. uh, and uh, Leonard Cohen uh, was, was a sex symbol. And uh, it was just a time when, uh, you know, Norman Mailer was writing and, and Mordecai Richler was writing. And it was a real golden age where it was cool to be Jewish. And I love that. And I, I try in my own way, in my own little way, to just keep that going through my life as an example to others. So your Judaism is cultural as much as it's anything. It's not religious. I am definitely not a religious guy. Um, uh, Ralph, I would not call myself, I never have called myself, although other people think I call myself an atheist. I never would do that. I would never call myself even an agnostic. But what I would call myself is a free thinker. And that's an old, old term. And it just means, I don't know. I don't know. There's great arguments on both sides, and I am only a mortal. I am not likely to solve those 
that argument. So I give both sides their due. Was there ever a time where you thought about the idea of, is there a God? When I was a child, I accepted the idea that there was a, a God. Sometime when I was a teenager, I started to question that, along with everything else I started to question, including things about politics, about art, about sexuality, about everything. Um, and it all went in together. There was a time when I would, did not want to walk into a synagogue. Now I kind of get a, it's kind of a nice feeling. It's a bit of a warm feeling. Um, I've got a nine-year-old, remember, and I've got a nine-year-old in a blended marriage. And I've got to kind of figure out how I'm going to do, you know, uh, give him some kind of uh, Jewish background, because I think it's really important. It's a great tribe. Um, it's, uh, I, what I love about Judaism most is that um, it's, it's an official opposition and has been an official opposition for thousands and thousands of years. This is healthy. This is very healthy socially. This is very healthy politically. And uh, I want him to feel part of that. So I will probably send him to some kind of reform uh, religious instruction. But it will definitely be reform. Isn't Can't be too reform for me, Ralph. Official opposition. In fact, can I tell you something? Yeah. Um, because I had said I, it can't be too reform for me in my spiritual quest. And I want to get to that word spiritual in a moment because I mm. hate it. All right. <laughs> but but yeah. let's put that on the back burner for a moment. Do you know about Arenu? Uh, yeah. Arenu is humanist? Judaism without God. Yeah, and Jewish humanism. Right. Sorry? Jewish humanism. Yes. So they were running these ads in the Globe and Mail about 10 years ago. Um, come to our meeting, come to our meeting. I thought, this is really interesting. I'm going to go to this meeting. Um, and I tried to find anybody who was my friend to go with me because I don't want to go alone. Uh, <laughs> but I couldn't find anybody to go. So I went. So they had their meetings at uh, Workman's Circle on uh, Lawrence Avenue. Uh, and I walked in a bit late and there was a, a desk. And uh, the guy behind the desk to welcome me said, Shalom, I'm Bob McGregor. I said, oh, uh, shalom, Bob. And this is my, my, my colleague, uh, Sean uh, McPherson. I said, oh, hi, Sean. Okay, these are two of the non, biggest non-Jews I've ever met. What the heck are they doing there? <laughs> All right, so they, they say, go downstairs, and there's, a, there's a, serv a service going on. So I go downstairs, and the service is going on, and there's probably 150 people in there. They have a nice choir. I like the choir, because one of the things that always drew me to Judaism was the wonderful singing. I love singing, and that's a big part of what we do, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, but I look around, and this doesn't look like a typical group. So, what do I see? I see people who I recognize from my days in the movement old communists, mm -hmm. um, old 60s hippies, and they wound up there. Then I see um, a lot of people with, I see they have um, Holocaust tattoos on their wrists. And on the basis of that, it's because there was no God in the camps. And, you know, people like Elie Wiesel have written extensively about, about that. They still want to be Jews, but they cannot believe that God could allow um, Auschwitz to happen. And so there's that group. And then there's a third group. And it's clear that these are people who were in Jewish marriages. They got divorced. But they liked the Jewish stuff, so they stayed in. But this was the best way for them to stay in. So I was kind of intrigued by that until they brought the rabbi on. The rabbi was an 80-year-old guy from uh, Detroit who would come in to give a sermon. 
And I don't know, Ralph, is it just me? Or do you feel that a rabbi should not have had extensive uh, plastic surgery done? Uh, yeah. Uh, it, well, it really, yeah. really threw me. And that was pretty much the end of my, my, uh, uh, my uh, going to a Renu. You just so that's thought my, that, that's my story. You thought that at that point, what looked like sincerity devolved into a show. Yes, I did. I did. And um, the, theater is a part of religion. So it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing because, you know, a great choir, how many people go to a church or a synagogue or a mosque and go, I don't like the priest. I don't like the imam. I don't like the rabbi. You know, I'd like the other guy more. That wasn't a great sermon. I mean, to me, sometimes the commodification of the of the idea of religion starts to become, well, I didn't quite like the way you present. Your marketing wasn't good enough, okay. as opposed to why am I here? What am I doing with my life? Hineni, it's not where are you, God? It's where am I? You know, what am I available to at this point in time, as opposed to get it just right, and maybe I'll think about it. Right? I used to go to Shira Shemayim occasionally. That's orthodox, for people who may not know that. With my with my father, um, didn't really relate to it, didn't really like it. But a lot of my friends in high school went to uh, Holy Blossom, and at that was the time when Rabbi Feinberg was the um, the rabbi. Now, I guess you know a lot about Rabbi Feinberg. Yeah, yeah, Rabbi Feinberg. If you take a look at the famous pa picture of uh, John and Yoko in their bed in in uh, Montreal, you'll see a guy with a big beard, and you wonder who the heck is that guy. That's Rabbi Feinberg. Rabbi yeah, Feinberg yeah, yeah. was the coolest person probably on the planet, and he was the rabbi there. So, of course, I loved going to Holy Blossom to hear this guy speak, because he would right. start, today we are going to talk about the lyrics of Bob Dylan, and I was in heaven. <laughs> I was in heaven. I was 16 years old, and instead of you know listening to a rabbi um, go on about something in 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 the Talmud, this guy made it very very current, and I loved it. And to this day, I have a soft spot for uh, Holy Blossom. Though I got to tell you, I went back there for a bar mitzvah the other day, and uh, I found it too frummy. Too orthodox. Too orthodox now for a for a reform synagogue. Well, well they have. God Ralph, center it's right. To the right. right? It's, it's all drifted to yeah. the right. And the only difference is um, now, you know, there's a feminist uh, kind of uh, strand in the rainbow. But other than that, um, even in even in uh, reform synagogues, people are wearing taluses and they're wearing yeah. kippahs. And that was not the case in 1968. No, no, you didn't have to wear a kippah, which me as a nice Moroccan boy, I was just like, what are these people doing? They've got an organ playing. They've got a choir. It's like a Methodist church in here. I really couldn't understand Reform Judaism. I just I believe that Holy Blossom out. in 1968 booked uh, the Ugly Ducklings. I could be wrong. Yeah, Moby Grape. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, let's get to the word spirituality. What your you you said you hate that word. Well, okay. First of all, you know you'll run into an awful lot of people, and in conversation, they will say, "You know, I don't like organized religion, but I am a deeply spiritual person." Yes, spiritual but not religious. It's a natural. Yeah, but movement. I don't under, But I do not understand that. I think actually the truth is, um, I am not a spiritual person whatsoever. But I believe in religion. I believe Talk in to the me. Value. Tell me. Tell me how that works. Well. First of all, we have to ask ourselves, what does uh, spirituality really mean? 
What does that word mean? It means something different to just about everybody. To some people, it means behaving nicely and kindly, but you don't have to believe in the interconnectedness of all things to be nice to people. I don't believe that you need um, the Ten Commandments to know not to kill. I mean, things of these, these sorts of things are, can be ingrained in you in a lot of different ways. But I like religion because religion at least is a, a good, a fairly, sophisticated conversa- a fairly sophisticated conversation about um, the human soul. Um, and I think there is a human soul, but the, uh, the jury is not quite certain about this yet. But I think there is. And I like that conversation. And I like the idea that we go to a, a church or we go to a mosque or we go to a synagogue and we're thinking and talking about things that we can't buy. I like that. Mm. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. This is one of the few things that I kind of like about what's happening now with our Im- imposed uh, quarantine. We're kind of forced to think about things that are outside the usual commodification of our lives. I don't want it to continue forever. I think some of that commodification is a good thing. Um, it's a pleasure, and that's pleasures are good. I'm not anti-pleasure. In fact, I'm pro-pleasure, as you probably know. But when people say yes. spirituality, I just don't know what they mean. For some people, it means they go to the mountains and there's a lake beyond the mountains and they're filled with this feeling and that feeling is a spiritual feeling. For me, I get the same feeling, but I would describe it as an aesthetic feeling, not a spiritual feeling. So there's an interesting idea. And <clears throat> sometimes when I'm speaking with, with groups of people, in uh, doing workshops, I, I, I say, you know, um, spirituality is a relationship thing. It's uh, your relationship to yourself, your relationship to other people, your relationship to the earth and to the universe. Religion is a fitness program for that spirituality. Hmm, that, that's a nice way of putting it, Ralph. That's, that's cool. Because, you know, you have to sustain something. A nice feeling on a walk is not a sustainable spiritual life. It's just a nice feeling on a walk and it'll fade by about seven o'clock that evening uh, as you sink into the couch to watch something on Netflix. But if you want anything, if you want a six pack as an abdomen, you've got to do the workout. You've got to do the crunch. So with religion, it's a way of saying it doesn't really matter if you feel like doing this on Friday night. You're doing it on Friday night because it's Friday night. And you have to, and you have to actually knock everything off for a day or whatever it is in whatever religious practice you have. So for me, that's the sort of value of it. Uh, And yes, there's different ways of even getting there once you're in that. But I don't mind people saying they're spiritual. I just, I guess I'm with you and I I mind them using it as a sort of off ramp for their life to go, no, really, I'm spiritual. And then you say, well, what do you do to pursue that? Do you have a regular meditation practice? Do you have anything? And you find out that, no, they just say, what they're trying to say is, I mean well. I want things to go well, and I'd like to be kind to people. I have some ethics. And that is not to be sneezed at. No. When you consider the number of people who do not have ethics, any kind of ethics. So I would say I'm closer to that, but I would not describe it um, as spiritual. I just try to be as kind as I possibly can to as many people as possible. I try to always um, encourage peace between people, whatever that might mean. Um, I try not to have anger as my default emotion. Um, These are all things I feel are worth working on. 
And these are things that have, have evolved for you over the years, because you were a very passionate and sometimes mercurial person when sure. you were younger. Not anymore. Hmm. Not anymore. That's lovely. Maybe. But well, I'm not saying you were a bad person. I'm just saying no, it's I lovely know. to evolve. Wild. It's I lovely was, to evolve. I was a wild guy. <laughs> and, uh, and that was Have some Kugel. We're partying in a minute. Ralph, my wildness was needed then for me and for those around me. Now, hmm. um, it's a different thing. What's needed is somebody to come into a group of people who are arguing and at each other's throats and calm everybody down and to find some kind of uh, common ground. That is the new power. You know, it's interesting. When I think about what you did, uh, I often think of your that you had courage. You had guts. Like, not a lot of people would have started a comedy club at a dollar a night on a Wednesday night in a Church Street basement. And not a lot of people would have seen it through. It was one thing to have an idea. It's another thing to actually have said, I'm going to keep going no matter what. And is that courage? Or is, is that just all that other stuff you talked about, about needing to be in constant motion. Or fools rush in, where <laughs> wise men fear to tread. Um, you know, again, that was, uh, I was very lucky that I was not too uh, the self, I did not analyze things too much because if I really did analyze things too much, I might've said, oh, I'll never get this done. I'll never do this. This is a bad idea. There are people who don't like what I do. I better stop. Uh, but I never had, that chip was missing from me, luckily. And intuitively, I knew that what I was doing was a good thing, but I didn't know it was going to last. I didn't know it was going to become, you know, successful in a world. Did you doubt day. yourself? No. No, I didn't. Hmm. I would not have been able to do what I did if I had doubted myself. And I surrounded with pe myself with people who made sure I didn't doubt myself. Hmm. I had very good friends. I could never have done anything that I did without my, my friends and supporters. You know, sometimes when I see really good stand-up, I think a lot of these people could have been preachers, could have been, you know, pastors and rabbis and all the rest, because there's a part of them that wants to not, to stop the funny for a minute and go, I'm telling you something. I'm trying to talk to you. We're in and this together. This is screwed. And at least one was Sam Kinison had yeah. been a had been a circuit preacher before he became a comic. And yeah. I remember driving around with him uh, and he said, hey, do you want to hear something? I want to play you something from my past. I said, sure. And he had a cassette and he put the cassette in the car uh, in the car system. And it was a cassette of him uh, doing uh, like circuit preaching. And Ralph, the the rhythms, the cadences. Everything was exactly the same as a stand-up act. The mm -hmm. only difference was that he had put jokes in. Is that, could that be true of more than Sam? Yes, but the others weren't necessarily technically uh, ordained ministers. But I think a lot of people have a lot, to, a lot of things to say. Stand-up is a great way of saying it. Um, it's either that or you're in a bar and uh, you're the guy in the bar stool annoying the guy next to you. Is this, has stand-up become just a commodity at this point? Is it Because when we were all doing it as young, young people, it was a calling. Like you weren't going to get money out of it. It wasn't going to be fame and fortune. You were like, it was a really hard life. 
and you really had to sort of claw your way through it. So you did it because you had to do it. It's like jazz musicians. They don't do it because, oh, I think I'll, I'll do this and everything will be fine. They're doing it because they have to be jazz musicians. And comics sometimes strike me that way too. If you're um, not doing it because you have to be doing it, you're not in it for the right reasons. You yeah, might. but you can do it now and go, you know what, I can, I can open for guys and get this much money a year. I can tour this long and get, you know, like it became a job. I noticed that we were getting all kinds of different people who were coming into it who really didn't have fire and passion and burn. Uh, but they thought, you know, I can do this and there's enough gigs out there that I'll be okay. I don't know, Ralph. I mean, it's sort of like medicine. Medicine is commodified. You get into it, you know, you're going to make a, a, a good deal of money. But um, there's also the idealism of uh, lightening people's burden and saving lives and uh, eliminating human pain. I don't think the two things are necessarily mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. However, it is chilling for me to, uh, you know, I have a, a school that I've put together at Humber College and then we're in our 15th year and we teach people how to be comics. It's a two-year course and you get a certificate at the end of it and your parents come and they watch you graduate. Well, that was certainly so far from our experience, Ralph, where our parents were actually arguing over who gets the pistol to shoot the other one first. <laughs> I didn't right? get a certificate. I missed that part. It was All really... right. So, um, so they, they do this and they come to me and I, um, they have a five-year plan. And it's chilling for me to hear this because this is so completely uh, removed from what the spirit was when we got into it. But I still mm -hmm. don't think that there's necessarily anything antithetical between wanting to have a job doing something that you do good in. And the two, I, I don't think that's antithetical. There are too many good comics who are making a really good living for whom it's a good, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a job and they are saying important things. So where do you go now? What do you do now? You're, you said you're going to be 68 soon. What's, what's life supposed to be now? Well, I'm not done yet. I mean, I'm involved in a really interesting charity with two other people named David Goodman and um, uh, David Himmelfarb. And for the past eight years, we've been doing a thing called Humor Me. And uh, at Humor Me, once a year, um, we get CEOs, big CEOs, presidents of banks, um, presidents of big, big companies to do stand-up in front of a thousand strangers and pay for the, uh, pay for the process. It's kind of like Miles for Millions, except remember Miles for Millions, where we would go around <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and pledge 25 cents for every mile I walk? They do the same thing, except they go to their rich friends and they say, pledge $100,000 for every minute I can be on stage. Uh, and then we have uh, Yuck Yucks mm. Comics who mentor them. And then we have uh, a panel sort of like, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, those those shows where they judge people. Oh, yeah. Judges, but, talent, yeah that kind of thing. And I play the Simon stuff, Cowell yeah. role on this panel. And we raise about a million dollars <laughs> on, on one night for this. And, and where's the money go? Uh, mostly kids charities. Why? Why kids? We like kids. They're innocent. They need help. Yeah. Um, so the plan is now to take that and start putting it into other cities. So that I'm very excited about this. And, you know, I've got to tell you something else, which I think you will agree with. Um, when you're doing a project on anything, it doesn't matter what field you're in, most of it is how you feel about the people you work with. 
And if you really like the people you work with, it's great. And if you don't like the people you work with, it doesn't matter how good the uh, the project is. But I really like working with with the David and David, and so um, it's it's a good it's a good project. I also want to um, I want to try to uh, turn my company into a bit more of a media company, um, and uh, you know do some uh, some stuff more stuff on the internet some maybe uh, i've written two screenplays that have gotten some interest and um i think i, I want to do more stuff like that and then remember i got a nine-year-old i got a nine-year-old yeah. boy who i i love 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 and you get the I, I believe you get the child you're you want you really want to get and that you deserve and i got a boy who can't stand sports so while i look at all my <laughs> all, all these people i know who are schlepping out their hockey games at four in the morning i don't have to do that um, he, <laughs> what he does he love? What does he love? He loves nature. He loves animals. Um, he loves bugs. Um, he loves transportation systems. Um, he loves pranks. He loves jokes. He loves Minecraft. <laughs> right. I mean, I got a 10-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 30-year-old, and a 33-year-old. So yeah, well, well, I you know. and I are on the same path, I guess. Yeah. But um, so that's, I mean, that's a major part of my life. That's an everyday part of my life um, is, um, you know, trying to love him. And uh, I think I'm doing pretty well on that level. It's a strange time, isn't it? I mean, you, your clubs are closed. It's awful. You know, everybody's, there's no social moment. You know, there's no one to talk to in that, on that level unless you go online, but... One more thing. I want to ask one more thing. Yeah. Do you believe there's an afterlife? Don't know. Do you want to believe there's an afterlife? Not particularly. I think we live on through the deeds that we do. Oh, that is such a cliche. But it's true. Well, it's kind of true. On... Sorry, what? It's true. Yeah, we live on through the deeds that we do. Um I think that unfortunately, you see, if you come back, if there's some, something akin to reincarnation, um, my fear is that you, because of the law, second law of thermodynamics, you would lose some amount of energy in that transfer. So you would be, you could only come back as something lower. Um, so I could only come back as a lounge act or a magician. And I don't <laughs> want to do that. <laughs> there used to be a, a place in Winnipeg called the Viscount Gort. I know it. And I they know had, it right? And they had a comic in there. I can't remember his name, but when I worked there at the CBC for a couple of years at the beginning of my career, um, he uh, he was there every night. And I thought there was nothing tougher than trying to be a stand-up in the same place every night because it's not like you can do your act once and go away. You, he's got to just be with whatever's there that night. Well, nowadays we would call it a residency and it would yes. sound very classy. <laughs> and you'd get a certificate. Yes. Which is still something I'm trying to get over. Um, anything you didn't do or don't think you'll get to do that you would, you kind of feel like well, that would have been good too. Should I, should I have stayed in California when I went to produce the Joan River show in 86, 87? I had an opportunity to stay, but I would have had to kind of start at the bottom again and work my way up. But I had enough contacts that wouldn't have been impossible. I had an amazing relationship with Fox, and I don't mean Fox News, but the Fox that was toying with, they hadn't even put married with children on, on the air. 
and they were looking for people to be, um, you know, development people. I think I could have gotten that job, stayed there, and I think I would have wound up um, being very involved in the American sitcom business. And I think that would have been an interesting life. I liked California very much. In fact, we had a, my wife and I had a, uh, an exit strategy, which was to move to Palm Springs, not Los Angeles, but Palm Springs, because we love it there. I mean, Jews, gays, cacti, what's not to like? But, um, uh, it's got a lot of um, culture and sophistication for a place that size. And we love the weather. I have no problem with the heat. I'm a Jew. I can wander in the desert. No problem at all. Uh, but then when we had Jackson, we realized not a good place to bring a child to bring up a child because uh, it's kind of a, a retirement community in a, yeah. in a sense. And yeah. he'd wind up just cooking meth north of the 10. So we thought <laughs> this is not a good idea. Maybe someday we'll have enough money. We'll buy a, we'll buy, we'll just buy a vacation home there. Or he'll be um, a caddy on one of those golf, golf courses where you can see where the desert's rock is and then the sod on top of it. Yes, that's right. Oh, Frank Sinatra away. Sorry. Frank Sinatra away. We, know. We rented a house once. It was a beautiful little house on a golf course. And if you look directly across the golf course, a good mile, maybe even a little more, you could see Frank Sinatra's house, which, by the way, is owned by a Canadian. Oh, yeah. It's owned by Jim Pattison. Oh, from and, BC. And he rents it out for, it's not that crazy. He rents it out for, I think, $3,000, $3,200 a night. And you go with a bunch of people and it's not, it's not impossible. To, if to you were in the rap, long. if you were in the Rat Pack, which who would you have been? Well, I would have been Dean because he doesn't drink. Yeah. I don't drink. I know. I love that about Dean that his whole thing was about being drunk and he didn't drink. Yeah, I think I would have been Dean, and I would have loved to have sang. I, I, I could never sing like Frank in a million oh, years. No, no, no. But I may be able to carry a tune and sing a bit like Dean. It isn't that yeah. far from the possibility. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree with you more because I would have been Dean. I yeah. interviewed his son once uh, and he described his dad. He said, my dad was all about being a dad. He was a homebody. He just hung around the house. He just played with us. And then he'd go out there and I'd see him on TV and I'd think, what's he doing? And he would be like, Hey, how's it <laughs> yeah, going? Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Drunk guy. And it was just like, he'd come home and be like, I'm not going out. I hate going out. So well, my son Jackson is. has gone to a lot of my uh, public performances. I don't do stand up, but I do a bunch of, you know, lectures and sort of do hosting and things at different events. And I bring them sometimes with my wife and it is a shock to him. Yeah. I think to me in that context. Yeah, they stare at you and they stare at the audience and think, "What is he doing? What? Well, how's this yeah. happen?" You were really, a, you were really a good stand-up. I always thought. You Thank you, a, Ralph. No, really. I mean, people would think, "Oh, well, it's his club. It's you know, he's just emceeing because it's his club." And some of the stuff you did was some of my favorite th uh, stuff, and it it was modeling for the rest of us that we could see that if you were going to get out there and, and have that kind of guts and say the things you did and, and really go out on the limb and not care whether it was going to kill, but really just do it and commit to it. I think for a lot of us, it sort of put a little steel in our backs where we went, right, you can do this. You can just go out there and do this. You don't have to be safe. You don't have to worry about it. You just go for it. So I always admired that about you. Thank you, Ralph. And that was part of the plan. I mean, that was, 
part of the idea that if I could go further, if I could go out that far, then um, it would sort of pave the way for others to go far too. Yeah, and it worked because yeah, a lot no, of them did very well. well. We, we certainly had amazing people come out of the club, certainly in that period of time, one yeah. after another, after another, after another. And nowadays, though, I don't see a lot of emergent Canadian comics uh, that, you know, go to L.A. and... Well, the marketplace, you got to remember, Ralph, the marketplace has shattered. And I don't mean because of COVID. The marketplace has shattered into tiny little plinths. And so everybody's got, um, there's a marketplace for everybody. There's no such thing as an outsider artist. That's what the um, internet has killed because everybody's got eight fans. Everybody's got eight <laughs> people who thinks that this guy is a genius. And it just goes from eight to 80 to 800. And if you have 800 fans in every city, you're now making a living. Right, right. You just go from place to place to place. But the idea of a Seinfeld, you know, who told me when I saw him at a, at a charity event a couple of years ago, said, uh, and I, I used to book him, and he said, yeah. Mark, I can't believe it. He said, they tell me uh, I'm worth $880 million, and sometime in the next four years, I'm going to cross the billion-dollar threshold. He said, and you used to pay me 100 bucks. Hmm. But you're not going to find somebody like that anymore. It's broken down. A lot of people, I think it's going to, the, the current scene creates a lot of well-to-do professional class comics, but not superstars in the way that we used to. Yeah. They don't shine as brightly to me. They don't have, some of them do occasionally, but I, I even watch stand-up specials and just think, Hey, you're all right. I mean, you know, okay. you got your craft down. You're, you're, you're serviceable, but you you're not. You're not Kinnison. You're not making me nuts and making me laugh at my, this and, ridiculousness of myself. And everybody has learned how to do stand up at least competently. Yes. I'm talking yes. about even people who aren't in the business. I mean, you know how you know that? Go to a wedding, and then the guy <laughs> gets up and he does his speech, and you know what? Not half bad. <laughs> That's right. He knows what the jokes are. He knows how to pause. He knows what not to say, and he knows yeah. what to say. And he's just a guy. And that's sits, what's happened. Sits down. I killed. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. And that's another thing. Yes. Civilians using uh, specific terminology. Yeah. Like, yeah. I killed. I always, I always found the language of stand-up very violent. I bombed. I killed. Uh, I, I slayed them. You know. Well, everybody knows about it, what a segue is now, and they'll use it in conversation. Teachers yeah. will say, you know, an economics teacher will say, now let me segue into, see, that didn't happen 25 years ago. <laughs> well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I'm very happy that uh, you had some time to connect with me because uh, well, I, I miss you, really Ralph. just see how you were. Yeah, I haven't seen you in a very long, well, I moved to another city. I don't see anybody anymore. So. I know, I know. I'll, I'll crawl down one night. You and I will go to a club together and we'll just sit there and go, what? That's it. That's funny. And then we'll just relax. No, that's not what you'll say. It's worse. You'll say that's funny. Yeah, that's true. You know, mind you, we used to say that back then. Guys, no, just, no, no, do the, the no, no, not in the audience. No, the emphasis but backstage. on the was different. We would yeah. say that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> it's the difference. It's the difference between leaning towards and leaning back. Yes, I want people absolutely. to lean towards. Yes, and you always have, my friend. Thank you. You take care of yourself, all right? You too. And we will get together when this is all over. Absolutely. Okay. All right. You, you take care.
You too. I love you, Ralph. I love you too, Mark. You take care of yourself and your family. Okay, Be you well. Too. Bye. Bye. Well, that's it for another edition of Not That Kind of Rabbi, the pandemic edition. And I uh, hope you've enjoyed uh, listening to our conversation. A lot of reminiscing, but then again, a lot of history. So it was all worth doing in the way we did it. And uh, if you want more of uh, Not That Kind of Rabbi, please find us on any podcatcher and subscribe. And uh, let's build up this little community that we have going here. And uh, in the meantime, in this very difficult time that we're in right now, take care of yourself as much as you can and take care of each other and find the love moments that you can and enjoy the fact that in a very odd and perverse way, as long as our health maintains itself, we are being given the privilege of being able to stop and look around and take stock of who we are and how we do what we do with our lives. So be well, and uh, we'll see you soon. I'm Ralph Bainberg.
This podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number 24-7.